For anyone who's joining us for the very first time, a warm welcome to you. My name is Reggie. I am one of the pastors here at Christ Church Midrand. It is great to have you join us here this evening. Now, uh, in the last few weeks, we've begun a, we began a series titled Beautiful Ashes. Now, I've spent some time explaining what it is that God will take his people through a process of ashes before he, may, he brings up beauty in them. Today, I want us to think a little bit about the beauty because this passage here actually does uh, bring that to light for us. Uh, but what we, we've looked at so far as well in a very first talk that was titled Unrelenting God, there we saw a God who cares, a God who's concerned about this humanity whom he has made. He's concerned about how we treat each other. He's concerned about the injustice that we see, that we see in our world. We saw a God who cares, who will bring people into account as well. And that is both the message that is comforting and frightening as well. And last week we saw in a message titled, um, Listen, that uh, God speaks to his people and tells them that as it comes to them, now he brings a message of, of judgment uh, because they have not actually listened to him. And as I've said today, we will be thinking a little bit about justice, a topic, if I may say, often makes people uncomfortable because uh, there's a lot of things that people think about when they think about um, the topic I've just mentioned, justice. Now let me read the passage for us for tonight, and then what I'll do is pray, then we will come into uh, God's word. So open Amos, hope you have it in front of you. Amos chapter 5 and chapter 6, we'll spend most of our time today in chapter 5. But open Amos chapter 5 and I'll read it for us. Hear, O house of Israel, this word that I take up over you in lamentation. Fallen, no more to rise is the virgin Israel, forsaken on her land with no one to raise her up. For thus says the Lord, the city that went out a thousand shall have a hundred left, and that which went out a hundred shall have ten left to the house of Israel. For thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, Seek me and live, but do not seek Bethel, and do not enter Gilgal, or cross over to Beersheba. Can you just wait a little? Um, there's noise coming from... Thanks for that. Uh, Beersheba, for Gilgal shall surely go into exile, and Bethel shall come to nothing. Seek the Lord and live lest he break out like fire in the house of Joseph and it devour with none to quench it for Bethel. O you who turn justice to wormwood and cast down, and cast down righteousness to the earth. He who has made Pleiades and Orion and turns darkness into morning and or turns deep darkness into morning and, dark, and darkens the day into night, who calls for the waters of the sea, and pours them out on the surface of the earth. The Lord is his name, who makes destruction fl flesh fast, forth rather, against the strong, so that destruction comes upon the fortress. They hate him who reproves in the gate, and they abhor him who speaks truth. Therefore, because you trample on the poor, and you exact taxes of grain from him, you have built houses of hewn stone, but you shall not dwell in them. 
You have planted pleasant, uh, pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink their wine. For I know how many are your transgressions, how great are your sins. You who afflict the righteous, who take a bribe and turn aside the needy in the gate. Therefore, he who is prudent will keep silent in such a time. For it is an evil time. Seek good and not evil that you may live so that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you as you have said. Hate evil and love good and establish justice in the gates. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord, in, the, in all the, the squares there shall be wailing, and in all the streets they shall say, Alas, alas, they shall call the farmers to mourning, and to wailing those who are skilled in lamentation. And in all the vineyards shall there be wailing, for I will pass through your midst, says the Lord. Woe to those who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light, as if man fled from a lion and a bear met him, or went into a house and leaned his hand against the wall, and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? I hate and I despise you first. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me burnt offerings and grain offering, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like the waters, and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Did you bring to me sacrifices and offerings during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You shall take up Sikuth, your king, and Kiyun, your star god, your images that you have made for yourself. And I will send you into exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is the God of hosts. Woe to those who are at ease in Zion and to those who feel secure on the mountains of Samaria. The, the notable man of the first of the nation to whom the house of Israel comes, pass over to Kalin and see, and from there go to Hamath the great, and then go down to, to Gath of Philistine. Are you better than these kingdoms? Or is their territory greater than your territory? O oh, you who put far away the day of disaster and bring near the seat of violence, woe to those who lie on birds of ivory and stretch themselves out on their couches and eat lambs from their flock and calves from the midst of the star, who sing idle songs to the sound of the harp and like David invent for themselves instruments of, mu of music, who drink wine in bowls and anoint themselves with the finest of oils but are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. Therefore, they shall now be the first of those who go into exile, and the revelry of those who stretch themselves out shall pass away. The Lord God has sown himself, declares the Lord, the God of hosts. I abhor the pride of Jacob, hate his strongholds, and I will deliver up the city and all that is in it. And if there's 10 men, and if ten men remain in one house, they shall die. And one, one, one relative 
the one who anoints him for burial, shall take him up to bring the bones out of the house, and shall say to him who is in, in the innermost parts of the house, Is there anyone else with you? He shall say, No. And he shall say, Silence. We must not mention the name of the Lord. For behold, the Lord commands, and the great house shall be struck down into fragments, and the little house into bits. Do horses run on, on rocks? Does one plow there with oxen? But you have turned justice into poison, and the fruit of righteousness into wormwood. You who rejoice in Lodibar, who say, have we not our own strength captured by our own strength, captured Karnim for ourselves? For behold, I will raise up a nation against you, a house of Israel, declares the Lord, the God of hosts, and they shall oppress you from Lebo uh, Hamath and to the brook of Arabah. This is the word of God. Now let me pray for us. Father, may we see as we come to this word today how you call the Israelites to seek you, to seek goodness, how you call them to have lives that are overflowing with justice and righteousness. And Father, may we see this and learn from it and learn from even the message that Amos brings against them, a message of judgment, because they have not lived in this very way because they have not worshipped you as you require. And this we do pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now that was a long passage. And to start off our time together today, part of the sermon today will be a little bit interactive. So I'll get you guys to interact with me, especially with the two questions that I asked a little bit earlier. So let's start with the very first one. If the people around you if the people in your office, your friends, uh, your family, and perhaps the people who stay next to you, your neighbors, looked at your life. So remember I asked if they looked at your life, what would they understand about worship? Now, what did you guys say? I did say this is interactive for the first part of it. I'll repeat some of the answers that you will say. Come on, let's hear people. What did they say? Uh, They'll say worship is a song. Someone else? They'll say worship is a lifestyle. Okay, that's the very church guy. But we'll come back to that. Uh, someone else? What would they say if they looked at your life? Now, honestly, we, we're in church. You know, you know what one commentator says? Uh, one commentator says, Christians don't tell lies. They come to church and sing them. Because they do not believe what they have just said. So let's be honest now. Let's be honest. What would people say about you? if they said what worship is. Okay, I'm going to pick on a few people. Prince, what would they say? This is me singing in the car. Okay, it's him singing in the car. Someone asked, David? <laughs> Let's get someone else. Come on, guys. I'm making this interactive now. I've picked on the ladies already. Chumuzo, what would they say? It is attending church. You don't look very different to the world. Yes, that is true as well. Someone else? 
They'll say, <laughs> religious and not spiritual. Let's get someone else. The last one. Well, they mention the idea of giving to church, that this is what you often think of worship as. And I mean, most of these things, most of them, are actually not wrong in explaining what worship is. Because in one sense, worship is some of these things. It is singing songs. It is reading our Bible. It is coming to church. We come to church to worship, to, to sing praises to God. But there's something that uh, the very church person among us said about what worship is. See, as you read through the scriptures, we would realize that whatever they've said about worship, it's not that it's necessarily wrong, but it's incomplete. And this is why. It is because worship is a lifestyle. Worship is us giving ourselves over to God. It is a total commitment to God. And if we use the words from the great commandment, it is a life that shows that you love God and love neighbor. And I mean, these are the very words that we spoke about in Exodus 19, verse 5, last week. We said, God redeems the Israelites. And in Amos 3, we see this. Amos 3, verse 2, God sets apart the, Israel, the Israelites and brings them and makes them his whole, his whole family so that they would love him. And if you read Exodus chapter 20, you would realize that the, great, the, two, the Ten Commandments are actually about loving God and loving neighbor. And the rest of, of what is said in Exodus, actually, is the unfolding of the Ten Commandments. It explains what it looks like to love God and love neighbor. So if you read the scriptures, we would agree that it's a lifestyle. It is loving God and loving neighbor. This is what it looks like to worship God as the redeemed people of God, as his redeemed family. But now considering that we are in the prophets, if Amos was in the room today here, what would he say? So if we asked him, what would he say worship is? So if you read through the prophets, you will realize that one of the things they say over and again about worship, they will say, worship is doing justice and living in a righteous way. Over and again, you will see that the prophets explain worship as being that. They will tell us this is how we are to worship. And they will tell us what worship that pleases God looks like and worship that doesn't please God looks like. So worship from the prophets is justice and righteousness. And as you saw in the passage we read a little bit earlier, we see how God feels about worship that displeases him. He hates it and rejects it. He hates worship that does not please him. Now, now think about this for a while. We'll get to explain what the words justice and righteousness are a little bit later, but think with this with me uh, for a while. Think about this. If someone walked in here and said they were sent from God, someone who looks like a farmer, so they would probably wear, be wearing khakis. Um, I'm not saying anything about their ethnicity, but they would walk in. Imagine this person. They walk in and say to us, stop, stop. God is not pleased with your worship. Now, I know we've explained worship as more than just singing, but imagine if they said that to us. God is not pleased with your worship. Now, I think what we would do, because we would be very suspicious of them, is that we would cut the mic. Or if we don't cut the mic, we'll wait until next week and we correct them, which is the culture here. That's just a joke, by the way. <laughs> but as you read through Amos, you see so clearly that this is what Amos does. This is what Amos and the prophets do. They actually come to the people and tell the people that God is not pleased with, with their worship. Because as they worship God, in their worship of God, in the way that they live their lives, their lives are not marked by doing justice. 
and their lives are not marked by living lives that are righteous. So how can they say that they are worshiping God? Listen to um, uh, this passage in Amos chapter 5 from verse 21 to 24 from the message translation. Now the message translation I would say is a little bit misunderstood. Uh, Eugene Peterson actually has done a great work in paraphrasing that very translation there. It is a good translation to have. If you've got the message, keep it, but read it with an NIV or an ESV or something different. But read both. This is what I love about the message. It just brings, it uses modern language to explain what uh, you're reading in the scriptures. Listen to what Eugene Peterson says from these very, very same passages. Amos 5, verse 21 to 24. This is what God says. I can't stand your religious meetings. I can't stand your meetings. You meet together to sing, to praise me. I can't stand any of that. I'm fed up with your conferences and conventions. Now, I know we've got one coming up soon. I'm, I'm fed up with your conventions. I want nothing to do with your religious projects. Chapter 3.5? I shouldn't say that too loud. Your, your pretentious slogans and goals. I'm sick of your fundraising schemes, your public relations, and image making. I've heard it all. I can take with your noisy ego music. When was the last time you actually sang to me? Do you know what I want? I want justice, oceans of it. I want fairness, rivers of it. That's all I want. Now, I hope you don't think that our conventions here at church that we've planned is a terrible convention. No, please come to that. And chapter 3.5 is a great thing that the church is doing. But we've got to interrogate ourselves as individuals and as a church. Could God say this to us? That I can't stand your religious meetings. I can't stand your worship. I can't stand it. And as we read through the passage, we will see so very clearly that although God can't stand it, when it is done right, God actually wants oceans of it. God wants rivers of it. He wants rivers of justice when it is done right. But if you've been with us in Amos so far, you would know that the Israelites have not in any way lived in a way that pleases God. So in, in, they have not in any way worshipped God. So if we were to describe worship in the way that we've said today, they've not done that. They've not worshipped God. They've not followed his law. They've not listened to him as we have seen so far. And so when Amos comes here in chapter 5, he turns their worship service into a funeral. He turns their worship service into a funeral by singing to them a funeral song. That word their lament in verse 1 is translated in the NLT as a funeral song. That's what he does. Turns their whole worship service upside down into a funeral. And he sings for them, Amakuku, Alelizwe, Ayosalimatunin. All the treasures of this world will be left in the grave. If you know that song, it actually says, I will, the next verse, it says, I will be left alone in the grave. And that's what Amos is about to say to them. He's about to tell them a message of death because they've not lived in the way that God calls them to. See, Amos reads their obituary while they're still alive. While they're standing before, them, before him, he reads their obituary. And for the people who are standing there, I mean, things are going well, if you remember anything about what's happening here. Things are going well for them. They're prospering economically. Their military is doing well. So as they look at Amos, they're thinking, man, everything in our lives is doubling, doubling. So what are you talking about, Amos? 
But Amos here reads the obituary and shows them that death is coming. The exile is coming because they've not lived in the way that God calls them to. But as you read through the passage, you also see a glimmer of hope. There's a glimmer of hope for those who will seek God or those who seek God. There's a glimmer of hope for them. So let's go to their passage and read and look at our very first point, which is seek and live. First point, seek and live. And we will begin from verse 4. We'll come back to verse 1 to verse 3 a little bit later. Now this passage here is where you see this little bit of glimmer of hope. But let me read a few verses for you from it. I want you to see this very same phrase, seek me and live, or seek and live, mentioned in a number of verses. Look at verse 4. Seek me and live. Verse 6. Seek the Lord and live. Now look at verse 10. Rather, look at verse, verse 14. Verse 14 says, seek good and not evil, and that you may live. Over and again, you see this very same, very same phrase being repeated. Seek God, seek what is good, and you will live. Now, some people have debated what this thing is all about. Is Amos here telling them about what they could have done? This is what you could have done. And because you did not do this, death is coming. Or is he telling them, or any who would listen to his message, that if you do this, there's actually hope for you? Now, I think as you read through the passage, it shouldn't be too hard to see that. It could be both. It could be both. It could be that he's saying, you could have lived in this way to worship God. But if you turn around, if you return, if you remember last week's sermon, if you return to God and live in this way, then there will be hope for you. So again, let's look at those verses. Verse 4, verse 6, and verse 14. Seek me and live. As you read through the passage, you see, it seems to be talking about two kinds of seeking. But really it's one. You see one that says, seek me or seek the Lord. And then you see another that says, seek goodness. Now what Amos wants them to see is that these two things are actually parallel. Seeking God is actually seeking good. But, but what does seeking God look like? Let's start with that in verse 4. What does seeking God looks like? Look at what it says to them. Seeking God looks like turning away from Bethel and turning away from Gilgal and turning away from Bathsheba. Now, if you remember anything last week we mentioned, if you don't, if you're new today, Bethel is a place that one of the kings, the king in the north, around 200 years earlier, created as a place of worship for the people of God. Bethel and Gilgal, so that the people do not go to the south to worship God. He did this in order to keep political power. And what he does there as well is, he does not just create these new places of worship, but in these new places of worship, he raises up his own priests, who are not from the Levitical line. And moreover, what he does is he brings in uh, uh, pagan altars for other gods to be worshipped. Baal is one of those gods. He brings in these altars into the sanctuary of the church for the people to worship God. And what you see from, 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 from that story is that actually Jeroboam I worshipped God in his own terms, which is what we said last week. He worshipped God in his own terms. And when this new king here continues to lead God's people, that's what he does as well. He allows the people to lead, to worship God on their own terms. But God here calls the people. He says, if you want to worship me, you'll worship me on my own terms. Do not seek Bethel. Do not seek Gilgal. 
You must seek God where he is worshipped. And when you see the word seek me or seek the Lord in the Old Testament, it is often pointing to the fact that the people of God are meant to seek God in the place that he dwells. And the place that God dwells is Jerusalem. The place that God dwells is in the temple in Judah. So God here is calling the people to surrender their way of doing life, to surrender their way of doing worship, and rather do it as he has called them to. And if they do this, if they seek him, if they listen to him, if they love him, then they will live. Now we'll explain a little bit later what the phrase, they will live, means. Now verse 14 and verse 15, the parallel verse that is there that is included. Notice it says, seek good and not evil, that you may live. And so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you. As you have said, hate evil and love good and establish justice in the gate. That it may, be, it may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. Now immediately there you see that Amos equates or puts together seeking God with seeking goodness. Seeking the good of others. Not doing evil, but doing what is good. Treating people with the dignity that they deserve as those who are made in the image of God. But now there's another verse that I want you to consider. There's a verse that is included a little bit later that I want us to consider that I think is actually parallel with these other two. And this is the verse. Go all the way down to verse 24 and listen to what verse 24 says. Verse 24 says, But let justice roll down like the waters and righteousness like an overflowing stream. Now when you think, when you see the two words justice and righteousness in the Bible, which actually appear a lot of the times, now, this might be a stat that does not interest you, but justice, the word justice appears in the Old Testament over 400 times, and the word righteousness close to 300 times. And together, these words, you will often find them paired around 25 times. Now, what we've got to ask is, what do they mean? And when they put together or paired, what do they communicate? Well, let's start by explaining what they mean. What does justice mean? One commentator puts it this way, justice carries the nuance of being used most often in a judicial setting, so in a court, between civil disputes between the Israelites. So this is where judgment is made. Judgment is made that someone was guilty of doing something and that someone deserves to be acquitted or someone deserves to be treated right. That's where you see the word used in one sense. But the word can be used differently as well. The word can be used as well to carry the idea of treating someone with the dignity that is due them because they're an image bearer. I love what one commentator says. He puts it this way. Justice in the Old Testament is not just giving people what they deserve because they're made in God's image, the good they deserve, but it is giving them what they need. And I'll explain a little bit later what it looks like to give someone what they need above what they deserve. I'll talk about that a little bit later. But what you see about justice is that justice is doing good to another person. Justice is relational. Righteousness. Righteousness is living a life that is in right relation with others. It is a life that shows that you seek God. And a life of daily conduct, of fairness, generosity, kindness towards others. So you see that this word speaks about integrity, the integrity of a person. But this integrity is not just personal. 
It affects how you treat others. So both words have to do with a relational sense. You see that righteousness isn't just being innocent, being in right standing with God, but righteousness has to do with how you treat others. If you look at Job, he's called righteous, not just because he seeks God, but because of how he treats others. And the true same of Abraham. Same is true of a number of Old, people, Old Testament people that are mentioned. They are called righteous because of that very thing. Now, when you read, you would notice that these two words seem to be synonymous. They seem to be synonymous. As you read them, it seems to be saying, the person who is righteous will do justice. The person who is right, in right standing with God, the person who knows how to seek God, will seek the good of others. And the people who were primarily called to do this were the kings. See, the kings were called to do this. This is what the kings did. They were the example of this. And they were also the officers of this. They were meant to lead the people, to show them how to live in a way that was both just and righteous. The kings were meant to create a culture of justice in the land. And as you read through one and two kings, what you will realize is whenever you find a king who does not seek God, a king who is not righteous, you can see it in how he treats the people. And you can see it in the nation as well. Whenever you see a bad king, you will see how the nation lives. The Israelites often turn away from God. They often mistreat the people around them. But when you've got someone who is righteous, they will do justice. They will, be, they will bring the sweet wine that we spoke about that Amos mentions in chapter 9. Instead of wormwood that is mentioned in this section. See, wormwood is a bitter fruit. And what, what, what Amos says here about the, the Israelites is that instead of sweetness, they've brought bitterness. They've brought bitterness uh, to the people of God. They've brought a culture of bitterness instead of, of a culture of sweetness and goodness. See, both the words righteousness and justice are relational. This is what we are meant to see. There are two sides of one coin. A, a just person, a righteous person rather, will do justice. Someone who loves God will love neighbor. They will seek the good of other people. Now, if we are looking for the kind of worship that pleases God, Amos would lead us to see that, that it is this. That the kind of worship that pleases God is when his people seek him and seek the good of others. This is what you see. Now, isn't that what Paul says in Romans 12? Someone a little bit earlier mentioned Romans 12 when we had a conversation. That in Romans 12, God calls his people whom he has redeemed, whom he has set apart in the same way. He calls them to give themselves to him as living sacrifices because that is their worship to him. But if you notice what the next verses say, the next verses talk about how they treat those around them. You immediately see that the person who worships God, the person who's in right standing with God, will then use their gifts in Romans for the good of others. Will love what is good and hate what is evil. That is still in Romans. The person who is right before God, who worships God in this way, will be someone who will look out for the weakness of a brother. There will be someone in Romans 15 who accepts and welcomes others. In the words of Tim Keller, justifying faith, when God has made us right with him and he has clothed us with the righteousness that we get from Jesus, that kind of life leads to justice. Justifying faith 
leads to justice. Justice is the sign of justification. See, if you've been made right with God, you will live a life that shows a concern for others. Now, let me give us a few scenarios for us to think about this. Because we've been speaking about things, these things for a few weeks now. Now, because the passage speaks a little about money, we'll talk about money and talk about, about other kinds of scenarios as well where this applies. The very first one. If you and I say we are indeed people who seek God and seek the good of others, that we are the righteous person who seeks justice, uh, think about this. When do you actually seek justice or do justice? When do you actually seek righteousness? Think about the times when you do that. And here's the first scenario. Do you complain at work about injustice, that you want better pay? that you feel unjustly treated then because you want better pay? And then, I used this example a while ago, and then not pay your helper better. See, the commentator who said, justice is not just giving people what they deserve, but it's giving them what they need. If you think about what the minimum wage is in our country, the minimum wage is 3,500. Do you pay your helper that? See, justice will be paying them that. But justice would be also thinking about what do they need? Do you need to pay them over what they deserve? What they deserve? Could you give them more than what they deserve? That's one scenario. But let me give you other scenarios. Scenarios that often involved us in conversation with others. And times when we'll actually cry for justice and not cry for justice in other scenarios. When you talk about justice, are you more concerned or comfortable in your conversations over a braai or dinner, dinner table or whatever it is? Are you more comfortable talking about the fraud in Stenhoff than the fraud in our government? Why is that? And the inverse is true. Are you more concerned talking about the fraud in our government and say nothing about white collar, white collar crimes? Do you consider the Holocaust to be a grave injustice and then have apartheid and slavery as a footnote? Or do you hold apartheid higher than the Holocaust? As, as you talk to people in conversation and you, you're defending the Christian faith and defending the Christian values, do you defend marriage in conversation with others more than you would defend the mistreatment of someone, perhaps, of, of a different sexual orientation than you. Of a sexual orientation that you might not, not agree with. You find someone in your office who is perhaps attracted to men or women, whom you know is mistreated or spoken, or the people around you do not speak well of them. Do, do you sit quietly then and stand up when people start speaking about marriage? No, I need to defend marriage now. But say nothing when that person is treated in that way. See, we need to ask ourselves about all these scenarios. Where do, we, where do we see, could people see that we are indeed righteous and just in the way that we act? Could they see that we love God and love neighbor in the way that we act? Someone a little bit earlier said, could your neighbors tell that you love God and love neighbor in how you parent your kids? Now, that was a bit of a step to me. Could your colleagues say that? Could people say that in, about how you use your money and your time? 
See, these are the kind of things we need to think about. What does it look like to seek the good of others? Seeking the good of others is using whatever God has given us at our disposal to serve them. That's what doing justice is. And as the people of God whom God has justified, we're meant to do that. Use our time, use our resources for that very benefit. And when we do this, if you remember the song we sang a little bit earlier, talking specifically about Jesus, that Jesus is the fountain who is the remedy for life. But actually, the Christian church, the church that God uses to take out his kingdom, is a remedy to a world that is dying, a remedy of life to a world that is dying. The church, in one sense, is meant to create a culture of goodness. You, wherever you are, are meant to create a culture of goodness because God has made you a king and a priest. I love what Mashate Mashua says in a poem that he says as part of a song that we will worship does. He explains how the kingdom of God is actually a river that is flowing, a river that has an influence on the rest of the world. Listen to what he says. I saw a mighty river flowing with the spirit of Ubuntu. I saw a river that feeds an abandoned nation with a distant people that would never cry, Silambil. When hunger hits the rocks of reality, or in their fruitful context, Istokfela, Siabed. Ladies and gentlemen, I saw a river. I saw a great. Gibone umfula and gibone ubukulu. That song, actually that poem and the song that comes afterwards is about praying about how the kingdom of God, the goodness of God can fill the world. And the way that the goodness of God fills the world is when the people of God seek, seek God and seek goodness. It is when we love God and love neighbor. Now you may ask who is our neighbor? Who is my neighbor? And the Bible is very clear who our neighbor is. Some people will say your neighbor is the people that you go to church with. But the people you're meant to show justice with are the people that are in the church. That's the people you're meant to do good to. That's how they'll describe justice. But as you read through the scriptures, you see how when God, how God has, uh, has touched our lives, or when God has come into our lives, it does not just affect how we treat those that are part of his family, but it affects how we, how we treat those that are not part of his family. So our neighbor is not just our brother and sister in the church. Our neighbor is the people you work with. Because those are the people that need to be touched by the goodness of God. Our second point, slack and die. This one is much shorter because we'll talk a, lot about, uh, a little bit about judgment in our next talk as well. Slack and die. And I want to focus again on justice as we come to this very point. Now, if you read through the passage, you'll notice that the passage actually is quite clear that death is coming. Death is coming for the Israelites because they've not listened to God. See, Amos has come to them. He has spoken God's word to them, and they've not listened. Yes, there's hope for those who will listen, but the exile is imminent. It's coming. Death is coming. And here are a few passages to show you that death is coming. Let's start with the very first one. I, I, I stopped us from reading verse 1 to 3 a little bit earlier. But now let's go back to it. Listen to what uh, Amos says. Hear this word. 
that I take up against you in lamentation, this funeral song, O house of Israel. The first word, fallen, is a euphemism for death. So he's simply saying dead is Israel because they've not lived in the way that God has called them to. Dead is Israel. No more to rise. And if you notice at the end of the verse, none to raise her. No one exists to raise her apart from God if they turn back to God. No one exists to raise her up. And then you'll notice that Israel is described as a virgin. Now a virgin at this time, now first I must say virgin here does not describe their moral purity. We've spoken about that already. But a virgin, the Amos here uses the word virgin to talk about them being a young girl that is waiting with excitement because she's in a prime. She's waiting for the most exciting and fulfilling time in her life, which is being a wife and a mother. Now, I don't know how many women would say that today, but this is what Amos wants them to get here. This woman, she's in her prime. She's waiting for this exciting moment that will happen in her life, but notice what will happen to her. Forsaken on her land. She will be forsaken with no one to protect her, so she will not actually experience this, this exciting event that she had been waiting for in her life. It's not going to happen. And notice what, he, what, he, what else he also says about death as you continue reading in verse 3. He says, For thus says the Lord, the city that went out a thousand, you can see how comprehensive and extensive this death is. They went out a thousand, they'll come back a hundred. Those that went out a hundred, they'll come back as ten. And notice again as you continue reading, I want you to look at verse 18 of chapter, of chapter 5. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you desire, why would you have the day of the Lord? It is a day of darkness, not light. As if men should flee, or as if a man should, as a man fled rather from a lion and a bear met him, or went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent beat him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom? with no brightness, you can see the idea there that it is extensive and they cannot run away from it. They cannot get away from it. Now, David says I like using movie illustrations, and I, I do. He's right. If you've watched the movie Final Destination, you'll see that. <laughs> that someone is thinking, I've run away from something that could kill me, and then something else comes and hits them. This is what God is saying to them. Amos uses that picture. You will think you've fled from a, bear, a lion, and a bear will get you. You think you would have fled from a bear. You've got into a house. You're safe. And then there, a serpent will bite you. He's pointing to them that the judgment of God is really coming. That they will face it. It is extensive. But we've got to ask, why would this judgment come? Why is it coming? Well, it's because they're slacking. And it's because they are slacking. See, they've become confident. And they've found their confidence in themselves. And in their wealth. This is what you see of the Israelites here. They have slept. They're no longer trusting in God. They're complacent. They think they can worship God in whatever way that they think they can. And so when they are told of the day of the Lord, listen to what is said in verse 18 once again. Why would you have the day of the Lord? Because they're thinking about it with excitement. Because this is what the Israelites would have thought. The day of the Lord is the day when God actually judges his enemies. But here Amos turns it around and says, because you are God's enemy right now, you have no time to be excited about this day. 
You have no time to be excited about it. He's showing them where their confidence is. And their confidence is in their treasure. Their confidence is in their, is in their, is in their prosperity, rather. And so when they are told that there's an enemy that will come, there's a country that will come, there's a nation that God will use to come and bring them into exile, that God will come and pass through their midst, language that sounds like the Exodus, what God does with Egypt. They don't seem bothered. They don't seem bothered at all because they think to themselves, we can defend ourselves. We've got chariots. We've got wealth. We've got all of these things. Who needs God when you've got wealth? And actually, that's what people do today. That's what you and I do today. Who needs God when you've got wealth? Now, we may not say it, but the way we live actually says that. Because we put our trust in wealth. It shows the way we live. The people in our office, Eden said a bit earlier, will tell that we are not different because they can see that just like them, we are trusting in materialism and wealth and everything else rather than God. This is what you would see. This is what they would see with us. Their confidence is in their treasure, it's in their wealth, it's in their prosperity. But moreover, notice how they're slacking. Because their, their treasure or their prosperity is the place of security for them. It is the place of safety. They're not the kind of people who will give to those who are needy. See, when money has become your God, you will hold on. You will not, actually not just money, when time has become your God, you will not use whatever resources God has given you to serve others. And so this past week, we spent a little bit of time at Style talking about what idolatry looks like. And, he, and, and, and Tim Keller explains it in a, in a very good way, what idolatry looks like. I think you and I, whether it's time or resources, I think resources, our resources, materialism, what they often give us is this illusion of power. They give us the illusion of power that you and I have influence. They give us the illusion of control. Because we have money, we feel like we can't trust God. We feel like we can have control of our own lives. And again, money can become an idol because it becomes a comfort for us. Or it becomes a place we run to. Because it gives us self-worth. It is the place where we find approval from people. And so if this is how material wealth is to you, then you will not give it to do justice. You will not give it for the goodness of others. And Amos here gets to them and says, seek good. Seek God and seek good. This is what he wants the Israelites to see. And I think it will be his very same message to us today. Do we seek good in how we live? Could people tell that we love God by the way that we love them? See, righteousness is seen in doing justice. Those whom God has justified, has made right with him, will be about justice. Let's pray. Father, would you help us to see that to love you, to seek you, is to seek the good of others. It's to love our neighbor. And Lord, all of us know the many ways we have failed to do that. And so in this coming week, we pray that you would help us to do it better. And Lord, help us as we do it better. That the place where we find motivation will be the fact that you have justified us. You have made us right with you already. 
You've set us apart. You've made us your family. A family that is meant to be a river, a fountain, that is a remedy of life to a world that finds itself in darkness and death. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.